down below already, but Lim lingered, rolling and lighting another cigarette. He puffed nervously. In the six years since he first shipped out, he had risen from learn boy to second steward, but he knew no more about ships and the sea now than he did then. Not because he did not want to learn, he did. Taking hot tea and cocoa to officers on the bridge, he became fascinated by the instruments, and he asked to learn how to trace currents, to read wind and waves, to chart a course with sun and stars, all the skills necessary to match wits with the ocean. But it was forbidden. Chinese worked as stewards, cooks, donkey men, firemen, and painters, not mates. Determined to learn a trade, he quit the sea after three years and enrolled in the Wa Nam Mechanics School in Hong Kong. Though he did not understand the teacher's Cantonese dialect, he enjoyed working with his hands, puzzling out solutions for problem engines and devising replacements for broken parts. But after only six months, a cousin who was chief steward on the Ben Lomond warned Lim that the Japanese would soon invade Hong Kong and advised him to leave while he still had a chance. So he signed on under his cousin as second steward. As Lim's cousin had predicted, Hong Kong fell to the Japanese, so Lim could not regret his decision to return to sea. But the constant threat of a sinking was a strain from which there was no escape, except for a few hours ashore once every three or four weeks. Even then, air raids and the mines laid around many of the ports spoiled any chance for true relaxation. But the older hands promised that Paramaribo, which they should reach in another six days, would be different, less touched by war. Lim glanced at his watch. Eleven forty. If he didn't hurry, he would be late reporting to serve Tiffin. Taking one last drag on the cigarette, he ground it out in the ashtray wedged between the bulkhead and himself, and swung down onto the deck. Swiftly he dusted off the bits of ash and tobacco clinging to his singlet, pulled a mess jacket over it, knotted the waistband of his loose Chinese trousers, stepped into his slippers, and ran his fingers through his thick black hair. The ship lurched, slamming him across the engineer steward's bunk. Then she heeled sharply, flinging him onto the deck. Ashtray, bedding, and mattress tumbled after him, and he heard a great creaking and thrashing of gear. Staggering to his feet, he wondered if a lookout had sighted the submarine. An explosion rocked through the tiers of steel decks, hurling Lim back onto the deck. He stared, stunned, as a pillar of water shot past the shattered porthole. The ship shuddered. He heard muffled cries, the sound of stores torn loose, skidding across decks, a steady hissing. Then a second explosion, fiercer than the first, catapulted him into the alley, and he realized that the Ben Lomond had been torpedoed. Weekly drills made his actions automatic, and he scrambled back into the cabin to grab his life jacket. He found it in a tangle of bedding and gear, yanked it free, and stumbled down the alley. Gusts of hot, acrid smoke billowed out of the ventilators. Shielding his nose and mouth with his life jacket, he struggled to keep his footing as the ship began to list, right itself, then list again, hurling him against bulkheads, fleeing men, the ladder to the boat deck. The ship was pitched too steeply for him to climb the ladder to his assigned boat station without both hands, so he stopped and pulled on his life jacket, taking precious seconds to fasten the straps and ties while others pushed past, shouting at him to hurry. Finally, his hands freed, he pulled himself up by the railing. The air on the boat deck was black with smoke, 
but there was no mistaking the empty space between the chocks, the falls swinging slack from the davits. The lifeboat was gone. Fighting panic, Lim leaned, coughing against the rail. Below him, scalding steam hissed out of the smashed engine room skylight, and he could hear the screams of trapped firemen. A wall of dull orange fire crackled around the air exhaust shields, creeping over the oil that was spilling out of ruptured pipes. Small knots of men slid across buckled decks, tripping over loosened rivets and sheared plates. An officer slashed the lanyards lashing the rafts to the forward mast, cursed as they skittered clumsily into piles of loose debris. Stinking black oil oozed into the sea through gaping holes in the hull, and the grind of twisting metal rose above the sound of engines barely turning over. The ship was still making headway, but she was settling ominously, and the sea was breaking over the deck amidships. Suddenly the ship listed sharply, breaking Lim's grip on the rail. Steadying himself, he caught a glimpse of a seaman and the second and third mates struggling to launch the lifeboat at the bridge station, and he scrambled over to help them. As a steward, Lim had been through hundreds of drills without once actually lowering a boat. Now his inexperience, his inability to understand the officer's orders, and the canted deck made him clumsy. Then, just as they raised the boat off the chocks, a noise like thunder ripped through the Ben Lomond's bowels. The bulkhead of the main holds collapsed. Tie your life jackets on tight and go over the side, the second mate ordered. Without a moment's hesitation, the seaman and the third mate jumped. As their bodies disappeared beneath green-black water, the second mate pushed Lim towards the rail. For God's sake, jump! Then swim like mad, or you'll be sucked down with the ship, he shouted, pantomiming how Lim should hold his nose with one hand, hug his life jacket with the other, then jump and swim. Before Lim could respond, the stern plummeted. Tons of green sea poured into the ship, forcing it into a death roll, and Lim was sucked into a punishing black swirl. Tortured water dragged him down, popping his ears, ripping off his slippers, tearing loose his trousers. He fought to kick them free, but the whirling funnel bound him too tightly, and he spun deeper and deeper into the whirlpool, boiling up from the Ben Lomond's violent plunge to her grave. The pressure against his ears became unbearable. His lungs felt as if they would explode. If he could only ease the pressure a little, then he could hang on, he was sure. But instead of opening a crack, his mouth burst wide, and his lungs expelled the air they had held so long in an explosion of bubbles that danced, mocking, before his face. He bolted down a rush of water, gritted his teeth against more but again his lips could not, would not hold, and he was sucking in great gulps of water and oil, when suddenly he was propelled up, thrown from the sea as brutally as he had been swallowed. Though he was spitting, coughing, and vomiting seawater and oil, the buoyancy of the kapok jacket that had brought Lim to the surface kept him afloat. But he needed something to hang on to, to steady him while he rubbed off the muck, sealing his eyes and nose. Floating wreckage bumped against him, he grabbed wildly, caught hold of a broken board, and dragged it close. Hugging it tightly with one arm, he cleared his nostrils as much as possible. Then he rubbed the sticky ooze that blinded him. But his fingers, equally slimy, only made his eyes smart more. He scraped his palms and fingers against the coarse fabric of his life jacket. Slowly, jerkily, he worked open his sealed lids. 
What he saw made him want to clamp them shut again. All that was left of the Ben Lomond was one or two large bubbles and a few wisps of smoke in a vast, evil-smelling pool of fuel oil, a broken spar, shell cases, bits and pieces of debris, the litter of fifty-five men, men who now dangled from life jackets like dislocated puppets, bloody, charred, split open like broken gourds. But if he was alive, there had to be others. The two officers and the seamen at the bridge station, perhaps, or the officer who had cut loose the rafts, the men who had taken the lifeboat from his assigned station, those whose cries of pain rose above the slap of water against debris. Here, over here, I'm alive too, Lim yelled, first in Chinese and then in English. Someone shouted, but he could not distinguish the words. Neither could he see where the sound was coming from, for the piece of wood he hugged and the glare of sun on oil restricted his vision to the area immediately around him, and his trousers shackled his legs so he could not move. He tore at the trousers knotted around his ankles, ripping them free. Then, still clinging to the broken board, he kicked furiously, pushing out in one direction and then another, until finally he saw two men on a raft about one hundred yards distant, pulling a third on board. Here! Over here! Lim called. Trying awkwardly to maneuver the raft towards another man floundering just out of reach, the men gave no indication they saw or heard him. Lim jerked the plank up and down, splashing, waving, and shouting. Still, they did not respond. He was wasting his strength, yet he could not stop. He had not swum since he was a boy on Hainan Island.